Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. Thank you all for joining me today. It's really great how this community is coming together. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, which is coming up pretty soon on its first anniversary in stores. Um, I know it sold out in some stores, and they've reordered it, and Amazon sold out, and they ordered some more. That's good news to me on so many levels. But, you know, my main thing is that I really want pregnant women and expectant parents and their families to have the straight scoop, the inside track on what pregnancy, prenatal care, labor and delivery, and the birth world are all about. You know, some of what it's all about is actually health-related. You know, making sure that moms are the healthiest possible and that their babies have great outcomes. But an awful lot of it is about other things that have almost nothing to do with actual patient care or health or wellness. And the trick to having the best possible birth outcome for both mom and baby is to know the difference. And that's what my book is for. So I want to say thank you to all of you who've purchased my book this year and shared it with others and given it as baby shower gifts. Um, all of you midwives and doctors who are recommending it to your patients, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It means a lot. And I sure hope it's making the difference. So yeah, the book is one almost. You know, I know a lot of authors use the metaphor that getting a book published is like giving birth. You've heard that, right? It's like giving birth. Come on. No, it's not. It's definitely a huge laborious process that requires a team of professionals to see it through to publication. And then after the book comes out, you have to tend it and prod it and keep it alive through marketing and that kind of thing. But it's not like having a baby. There's no real physical pain. Nobody's kicking your internal organs. Nobody's having contractions. and Nobody's life is at risk. Books are hard. No doubt about it. I worked hard on my book, um, but they're not that hard. Having a baby is hard. Raising a baby is hard. Writing a book is work. It's different. Anyway, that's a bit of a rant for no good reason, except that my book is on my mind. I'm happy that it's selling, and I hope that any of you who are pregnant or expecting a child or know somebody who is, pick up a copy of the book. And thanks again for reading and listening and thinking about what's best for the mamas and the papas. So today, before we call our guest, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping. We're looking for sponsors for the podcast. This is definitely a labor of love, but we need to pay the bills too. So any of you who are business owners and want to help keep this conversation going, hit me up and let's talk sponsorship. Email me at gene at genefaulkner.com. So what I'm really, really loving about this podcast, you know, now that, gosh, I think this is our 31st episode, is I love talking to other women who work in labor and delivery. These are my people, my tribe. So who do we get to talk to today? One of my favorite people of all time that I've ever worked with. We're going to call my friend Chris, who's a midwife, a mom, and a little bit older, like myself. Hi, Chris. How are you? It's Jeannie. Hey, Jeannie. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's been a while since you and I have chatted, lady. 
I know I've been watching all of your um, incredible doings on Facebook. You know, don't they always look just so incredible on Facebook? And, you know, the reality is, is that right now I'm sitting in my kind of grubby home office and you and I are just chatting. <laughs> it's not as glamorous as all that. No, it never is. But I'm intrigued by some of the things that you're doing. So, well, right back at you. That is pretty cool. Because um, one of the ways that I was going to introduce you is that you're an avid camper. And so, you know, what I see is you camping all over the place. And it's great. So let me do a little bit, just a really quick little bio, and then let's dig into it. So Chris. Sure. Chris is a certified nurse midwife who works in the Kaiser Healthcare System, where you deliver babies day and night. You're the mother of two daughters, as I mentioned, an avid camper, and you're an old friend. So Chris, with that as the preface, tell us more about who you are and what you do. Well, I am a native Oregonian, uh, born in, well, not born, born in Washington, but raised in Oregon. I have lived other places, mm -hmm. but um, what I have discovered is that I am an avid lover of the West. Um, I have always been a camper since I was a young adult. I actually never went camping as a kid. Uh, my parents were not that, were not campers. So I discovered camping with uh, various friends when I was in high school. And then when I was in college, I really started, you know, backpacking and um, doing rafting and doing all that kind of stuff. And when, when my children came along, I realized that it was an opportunity for me to do all the things I never got to do as a kid. So um, we have a lot of adventures camping and this spring we actually went on a two and a half week five state three national park road trip in our uh ancient vw camper and it was absolutely fantastic we went from portland to moab utah to the grand canyon to bryce canyon and back home and it's really great um as a parent it's a really great family togetherness activity although one of my children asked me at one point, Mom, why do you like camping so much? It's so much work for you. So true. But, um, so true. So true. But, yeah. but every once in a while, the kids will come up and they'll say, Mom, we really need to go camping. I really miss camping. And so a couple of weeks ago, well, whenever Memorial Day was, we went, um, we just had, I didn't make reservations. We just had two nights and we just, um, left after work on for our left after school on Friday and just went up to the Mount Hood National Forest and found a spot at a sort of off the tr beaten track campground and spent the night. And there's nothing more delightful than having your children be the drivers of that experience and then having them have so much fun. Yeah, yeah. So one of the best things about taking them camping is that they sleep in the top um, of the pop-up camper, and they sing to each other, giggle together, play cards together, and then I just read and go to sleep when I'm ready to sleep. Heaven. That same weekend, I went to it's Yosemite. Awesome. I went to Yosemite National Forest, and it was the first time that I had seen El Capitan and Half Dome, and you know that the really um, tourist popular side of the park. Mm -hmm. I've never seen that, and I grew up in in mm -hmm. California. I've been to 
you know, sort of the back side of it, Tuolumne Meadows and over on that side of the Sierras. But it was my first time and I was blown away, blown away. It's amazing. Yeah. I have never been to Yosemite, but it is on my list. It was great. And uh, I can't wait to go back. We rented bikes and did, you know, uh, I don't know how long it was. Somebody estimated we, we rode about 10 miles that day. And it was awesome. One of the best experiences I've had. Yeah. Yeah, we, we're so lucky that we have access to all this public land. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our national parks really are our legacy and mm-hmm. our children's legacy. And I feel very fortunate that we we have so mu- such easy access here to a lot of incredible places. Mm-hmm. So and we're, what we're you really, know, after- we're also really, really lucky that our, I mean, y- your daughters are early teens, adolescent and early teen, and I've got a 16-year-old that they want to hang out with us in some of the most beautiful parts of the world. We're lucky. Absolutely. We're lucky, for sure. We're lucky, yeah. Oh, I saw some pouty teenagers there. Oh, baby, did I see some pouty teenagers and some moms who you could just tell they were on their last thread. That was it. (laughs) There they were in Yosemite Valley looking at the most beautiful spots on earth. And you could tell that their kid had just twanged the last nerve. Well, you know, we all have those moments. I've got, um, you know, I'm a solo parent. I adopted two girls from China on my own, one when I was 41 and one when I was 45. So not only am I a solo parent, I'm also an old parent. And, um, you know, one of the things I've learned is that it's always good to ask for a do-over because when you've got adolescents and preteens and menopause under the same roof, mm-hmm. um, you're going to need some do-overs. Give me an example. So, you know. Give me an example. An example of a do-over, um, let's see. So a couple of weeks ago, one of my kids was really struggling with some limits that I had set that I um, – it was time for forecasting for high school. Oh, yeah. And um, so I had some ideas about what I thought would be good for her. I, I wanted her to be in band because the high school she's going to has a great band. And band is a way to um, have an instant community. And she has played the flute since she was in sixth grade. So I thought band would be a great idea. Yeah. She did not think band would be a great idea. And so we kind of had a little tussle over who gets to decide what class you're going to take. And, you know, I don't usually pull the, because I'm the mom, that's why card. Mm-hmm. So I had to actually, you know, I, I started to pull that card and I realized it wasn't going well because I was hearing, well, it's my life. You can't tell me what to do. I mean, she's not even 14 yet. Right. You know, it's my life. You can't tell me what to do. And, you know, I kind of went down the, well, I'm your mother. I have a broader view, blah, blah, blah. And what I realized in the end was that my approach was not working. That kid was not going to do band. And um, so what I ended up deciding was she gave me the catalog to look at. I looked at the catalog. I picked four things that I thought were things that would be good for her for the long run, that would be um, challenging but not too challenging, and that I would feel okay about her taking. She's in the Mandarin immersion track. So she only gets one elective. Uh, So one of her electives 
is Nandra and the other one is whatever she chooses. Uh-huh. And she's expressed an interest in doing IB, which means, you know, it's a different academic track. So, yeah. Yeah. so what I ended up doing was I said, okay, let's try this. Let's have a do-over. And why don't you hand me the catalog? I'll give you a list of what I think is reasonable and you can choose from that list. So that's what we ended up doing. Mm-hmm. And she was okay with that. And I felt okay about it. And I realized that, you know, even though I think band would be great for her, she doesn't think band would be great for her. So yeah, yeah. it's not going to be great for her. Yeah. So she's going to take art instead. All right. So I, I gave her the choice of band, choir, speech and debate, or art. Mm-hmm. And she chose art. All right. There you go. So, yeah, yeah, good. Hmm. Kids, I'll tell you, I like the idea of the do-over. I don't think that we do yeah, anything but, quite that formal, but it, it comes up a lot where, you know, mom thinks one thing, dad thinks another thing, and the kid has an entirely different thing going on. And, uh, you know, as they get into the teen years, more and more, the kids know best what they really should be doing for themselves. And it's so hard to respect that sometimes. It is. I yeah. would agree. Yeah. Yeah. I Take, would agree. Yeah. The hardest part about parenting is sometimes taking your hands off the wheel and letting the kids drive it. Yeah. 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 And I think I'm in a, I'm in a uniquely challenging and also uniquely, um, I don't know what the right word is. Uh, being a, being a solo parent means I don't have to ask another adult what the, what the plan should be. Yeah. So the plan just gets to be my plan, which does have some advantages. Um, it also has, disadvantages but I'm very aware that you know I don't have to ask somebody else for permission for where we go on vacation or what we're going to do or what decision we should make about dating about curfews about um, allowances and all that kind of stuff so um, so it is kind of a different path I was talking to my friend Jacqueline on the podcast just a few weeks back and she is also a solo parent and she she really she said the same thing that you know, your autonomy, I guess, is a good word for it as a parent is one of the one of the real benefits. But she challenged the idea that anybody is a solo or single parent. She says, no matter where you are, you have a community around you that's helping, even if you're not entirely aware of it, like the school community or, you know, the daycare community or something like that. What do you think about that? Well, I guess I agree in some ways because you certainly, I mean, I certainly would have never been able to be a solo parent without an incredibly strong community and great support from, you know, key people in my life. Mm -hmm. But I think when it comes down to it, when the rubber hits the road, you are all alone. And I say that in the sense that, um, you know, there's there's two kind of broad categories of times when you really feel the isolation or the loneliness of being a solo parent. And one is when your kids do something really awesome, mm-hmm. you're really the only one that cares. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the other is when you're, when your kids are sick or when your kids have a serious medical problem, you're the only one. Mm-hmm. So I would say that those two categories of life events or moments are the times when you really are on your own. But I would say that, yes, there is a, in, in, on many levels, you aren't alone. Yeah. 
because there are, you know, you have friends at school, you have friends at work, you have, um, you know, there are certainly a lot of micro communities to belong to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's the community of all your friends at work, all your nurse friends. That's how we know each other. Right. And then there's the community for me of adoptive parents, parents with kids from China, mm-hmm. um, parents to go to our school, parents who like to camp. You know, you can you can have all those communities, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your career. You've been a midwife for a good long time now. And one of the questions I wanted I've been to ask a mid- you, Oh, go ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. Well, one no, no, of, go ahead. One of the questions I was going to ask you is what's different about midwifery today than when you started your career? Oh, so many things. Um, well, I've been a midwife for 23 years, mm-hmm. and I have worked in a variety of practice settings. I started out in a very tiny rural hospital with 26 beds and two OB beds. Um, and many times I was the only provider in the entire hospital. Um, and the nurses used to draw straws to see who had to do labor and delivery. Yeah. And then I went, <laughs> yeah. And then I went to a tertiary care center for a while, at, which had a level three nursery and a teaching program for midwifery students and for residents. And then I came to the Providence system, which is where we know each other from. Mm-hmm. And I worked in a midwife only practice. And for the last, um, 15 years, I've been working for Kaiser Permanente in the Kaiser system. So I feel like I have a broad, um, a broad experience. And um, when I first started doing midwifery, um, there were, uh, let's see, how, how is the best way to say this? When I first started doing midwifery, there were far fewer bells and whistles. And we really, I think, relied a lot on our um, skills. And I think that in today's world, there are many more bells and whistles that people feel are necessary and maybe aren't. So bells and whistles, we're talking different types of computerization, technology, monitoring, testing. I'm talking different testing, monitoring, um, categorizing people as high risk who may or may not be high risk, um, sort of the medicalization of birth. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that is probably the the main thing. And the first, you know, one of the examples that I can use, and it's going to seem kind of silly, is that when I graduated from midwifery school, routine ultrasound was not a thing. Right. You only got an ultrasound if you needed one. Mm -hmm. And needing one meant you were measuring too small, you were measuring too big, or there was some other clinical sign that, that something was maybe different than expected. Mm-hmm. Um, and now people get multiple ultrasounds. And um, I have come to believe that connecting with your baby through your 20-week ultrasound is an important milestone for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I have come to accept that, I guess is the right word. But I feel like ultrasound is um, one of those technologies that is overused yeah and and the number of ultrasounds that people get in their pregnancy is shocking to me that's just one example and you know another example would be testing for fetal anomalies Mm -hmm. and um you know the decisions that go around that go around that kind of testing and people just assume oh you just get the test and then and then what right right 
So no, there's so, so many a things. lot of things have changed. Yeah, so many moms who are pregnant right now, as you mentioned, they take it for granted. They don't even necessarily realize that there could be downsides or that there are options or that it's actually not necessarily doing anything to improve their health or their baby's health. It's more about documentation, right. tradition these days, the culture of care, and documentation. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, protecting the provider, protecting themselves against the lawsuit. Right. I've talked about that a few times about, you know, if a provider, a doctor, a midwife, or a nurse is going to be sued when they go to court, they want to be able to show that they did absolutely everything that's possible to not have a negative outcome. But doing everything that's possible doesn't guarantee a positive outcome. And in fact, we're seeing kind of the back, the, the flip side of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And yet? Absolutely. And yet, you got to do it if you're going to be sued. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I would say that, um, you know, every, every time sort of the landscape, I mean, they say the pendulum swings back and forth and I've certainly seen that in my life. And I think that my job as a midwife is to keep the normal normal mm -hmm. and recognize when things are not normal. And I've, um, you know, that's been just my mantra over the years. And one of the things that I think is, um, ironically funny, if you will, mm -hmm. is that for, for years, for decades, for millennia, for as long as midwives have been practicing, midwives have put babies right on mom's chest, dry baby off there, delayed cord clamping. And that's just, that's just the way we were raised. Mm -hmm. And now the medical establishment has decided that those things are good. And so now everyone is doing that. And new ideas. And it's kind of... <laughs> Yeah, and it's like a brand. Oh, yeah, this is a new idea to leave cord clamping. And I'm like, dude, I, I, I learned that my very first birth in 1992 in North Central Bronx Hospital in New York. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's just kind of ironic. So I, I just kind of hearken back to that when I'm in the middle of things that, you know, protecting the normal is my job. And that's what I, I do. I like I that. Protect the normal. Keeping the normal normal. That's great. Keeping the normal normal. But at the same time, knowing what normal is means that I, I recognize when things are not normal. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very quick to get help from my physician colleagues or um, get different kind of care from my patients. So. so there is kind of a, a big push right now in um, certainly in global maternal health care, but also here in the, the U.S. to direct you know, more normal, healthy mothers towards midwifery care and just save the high-risk patients for obstetricians. And as you know, you know, that's the model of care in Europe um, and in countries that have the best maternal health outcomes. Um, and you and I both know OBs who are as low intervention as any midwife and other OBs who would deliver every patient by C-section if that was possible. Do you think that... Midwifery care is the solution to you know the poor to poor maternal health outcomes that we see here in the United States, and I guess specifically to really staggering C-section rates. 
I do believe that it is the, that it's the solution. And, you know, I work in the Kaiser system and the Kaiser system has um, all of the elements in place to have midwives be sort of the, at the helm for normal, healthy women. And we are working to shift that within the Kaiser system to make sure that's what happens. Mm-hmm. But on, on labor and delivery in the city of Portland, the Kaiser hospitals that are staffed by nurse midwives, the nurse midwives take care of all the healthy, normal patients. And so we are um, fortunate to have, if not the lowest, one of the lowest C-section rates in the city of Portland at 21%. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that's primarily because the midwives are taking care of the normal patients. Right. The other sort of arm of that is that because it's a, a team approach to care on labor and delivery, you know, the physicians that I work with are equally committed to keeping the C-section rate low. So we have sort of a strategy in place for um, evaluating and assessing labors that are maybe drifting towards maybe someone else would, maybe if you were having a baby in a different hospital, you'd get a section for that situation. Mm -hmm. We have strategies in place to um, do appropriate, but do appropriate C-sections, but as few as possible. Mm Mm-hmm. So I feel lucky to be part of that team. Um, but I do think that um, paying a surgeon to care for normal, healthy women in labor is not a good use of our resources. How and about, obviously... How about asking mothers to deliver in the intensive care unit, which is what labor and delivery units have become, with their own surgical ab- suites? It's crazy. It's, it's crazy. crazy. And you look at... Is it you, you'd probably know better than I since you're involved in global maternal health, but what is does Iceland still have the best outcomes for moms and babies for morbidity be, and mortality? It might be Finland, but it, you know, Iceland's always right up there. Finland, um, Norway, and, yeah, and we're number 33, correct? Uh, it depends, 34. Yeah, it depends on which metric you're looking at, but in terms of, um, you know, and some metrics were 60th, and in some we are 30, somewhere in the 30s, mid 30s changes. Um, but what what really yeah. what really is staggering is that, you know, I've been I've been working in the global maternal mortality world for a while, and over the amount of time that I've been involved in this, um, we're seeing maternal mortality rates drop. Um, even in some of the most desperate parts of the world, we're seeing those numbers go down. But we're not seeing that happen in the United States. And we're one of eight countries that has a rising maternal mortality rate. And uh, that's and co- concerning. And considering the um, amount of technology that, and the amount of money that we have available and being used for maternal care, mm-hmm. it is shocking. Mm-hmm. And I think that... Um, I do think that midwifery is part of the solution for mm-hmm. for changing that metric. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, we're we're in a really liberal part of the country, but in many, many, many parts of the country, um, midwifery doesn't have the reputation that it does here. It's still looked at as, you know, a, a hippie birth. You know, right. And that's pretty inaccurate in most cases. I mean, there are, there are, absolutely there are always those stories that people seem to find somewhere about, you know, somebody's 
cousin's girlfriend's stepsister saw a birth once and decided to deliver a baby in somebody's shed. That isn't, you know, and then and then you hear that story quoted around as an, an argument for why midwifery isn't the solution. And that's bullshit. That's just totally I bullshit. I totally agree. Yeah. It's total crap. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I, you know, I, I'm the lead of my group at this point. Uh-huh. Um, and one of the one of the things my co-lead and I have been doing is um, educating people within the Kaiser system about midwifery, mm-hmm. about midwifery at Kaiser, about midwifery in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so I have given multiple presentations in the last year to various groups of people about what a midwife is, what a midwife does, how midwives are educated. And, you know, what we know is in the city of Portland, midwifery in the last six years has really increased. Every hospital now has a midwifery practice. Every private physician group wants a midwifery practice because people in Portland want midwives. Mm -hmm. They want midwifery care. Mm -hmm. And believe me, women are, when before they purchase an insurance plan, they are checking to see, is there midwifery care offered with this insurance plan? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think midwifery has always been more popular on the coast, both the East Coast and the West Coast, and that there are large uh, portions of the country where there are no midwives or there are very few, and they're they are having to struggle to prove their worth. And I'm not sure how you change that. It's a bigger, it's a bigger conversation than, than I know how to have. Well, we just keep having the conversations, and, you know, Opportunity by opportunity, we educate the public, we raise awareness, and then that's where change starts. You know, one thing that, you know, when we talk about pregnancy and maternal health and prenatal care, most people are actually talking about outcomes for the baby, not the mom. You know, you hear it all the time. You want to make sure that you take your folic acid so your baby is healthy. You want to make sure that you don't eat certain lunch meats so your baby is healthy. Very little, yeah, very little conversation, academic and scientific research studies, you know, very, very little is actually focused on the mom's outcomes. And, you know, you even hear all that really matters is a healthy baby, right? I mean, it doesn't really matter what you just went through because you got a healthy baby. And, you know, again, I'm calling bullshit on that. A healthy baby is not all that matters. And a healthy mother who comes through her pregnancy feeling strong and respected and, you know, that matters a lot. And I, and I think that that is... It does matter a lot. I think that might be part of why women are accessing midwifery care. What do you think? Well, I think midwives view women as their partners mm-hmm. through the pregnancy journey. Mm-hmm. And it is about the woman and it's about her family and midwives have always been good at providing individualized care and what works for you or what you need is not necessarily what I need for Mm -hmm. my pregnancy Mm -hmm. and so midwives listen midwives will partner with you midwives will give you truly informed consent about what you're about to undertake and I think that's why women seek out midwifery care Mm mm-hmm because they want to be listened to and they want to be, they want to have a say in their healthcare. I always look at it in terms, you know, I look at everything with a feminist lens. And I think that um, a lot of women, a lot of women are bristling against the 
over authoritarian um, approach, opinion, slant, perspective, I don't know, whatever you want to call that, that they feel in a more traditional medical setting. You know, the doctor is the king and the patient does what she's told. And I think that maybe they, I think that women may feel less of that, less imbalance in the relationship with a midwife. I don't know that well, that's always about the case. Well, let's just talk about where that might even start. I mean, when I come in the room, I say, hi, I'm Chris Beard. I'm the midwife that's going to be seeing you today. Yeah. When my colleague comes in the room and says, hi, I'm Dr. Overbeck, that sets up a power disparity right then and there. Yeah. And so, and I think it slows down from there. So I totally agree that the um, traditional medical model is one of a differential in power. Mm-hmm. And it's very patriarchal. Very, very. Even if the obstetrician is a woman. Absolutely. <laughs> She's still Dr. So-and-so. Yeah. 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 I think that um, a lot of women that I talk with don't quite recognize the setup, but they instantly, you know, take the back seat to whatever their doctor is telling them. You know? That's part of, that seems to be part of our culture as we grow up. You know, in the American culture, you grow up, you go to the doctor, the doctor tells you what to do. And then you do it. Yeah. And then you do it. And so it's only when you realize that doctors are not gods. They don't know everything. They make mistakes. They make bad decisions. They give bad advice amongst their good advice and the good care they provide for people. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, we're we're socialized to do whatever they say, Mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm without really recognizing that ultimately any medical care that you get, you are getting because you made the choice to get it. Most people don't recognize that. I mean, even if your doctor said, um, I want you to have your fifth ultrasound, you don't actually have to have that ultrasound. You are the one who chooses to get in the car and drive over for that appointment and show up in the room and pull your shirt up. People don't recognize that. And people don't, and people don't recognize you can say no. You can say no. If somebody says, I want you to have this vaccine or I want you to have this test or I want you to have this procedure, you can say no. Mm-hmm. And I tell my patients, unless I tell you your life is in danger or your baby's life is in danger, you can always say no and you can always ask for time to think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We both and know that. And I think that- it's very hard for people very hard for people. Yeah. That's taking ownership of your own health and healthcare. And I think, you know, both you and I know that the really true, huge screaming bloody emergencies, they don't happen that often. Most of the time, it's not like that. And so when you're in labor and delivery and your provider is telling you what to do, you do have time almost every single time to say, I need some time to think about it. Let's give this another hour or so. There are those occasions, we've seen that too, where, oh no, we need to go now. We need to do something now. But those don't actually happen all that often. It's quite rare, actually. Quite rare. And it's more, it's quite rare. And, um, and I see people, I think what happens on labor and delivery is that women feel bullied. 
Yeah. They feel bullied into saying yes to things that they don't really want. Right. And, you know, it's in my setting, because I work in a, uh, I work in a team practice with physicians and midwives, you know, the physicians are still king, unfortunately, or captain of the ship or whatever you want to say. And I don't always agree with what I'm being asked to convey. Mm -hmm. And the perfect example is your water's broken been broken for six hours you come in and American College of Obstetricians says you need Pitocin right now right your your water's broken you need to have a baby and my personal belief is that you might need some if you want Pitocin that's okay but we should give your body time to get the message that your water's broken and it's time to have a baby yeah and so sometimes I feel like I'm part of the problem because at my institution, the standard of care is your water's broken, you get Pitocin. Yeah. So I'm always walking this fine line to try to, you know, support what my institution requires me to support and give the woman permission to say no. Yeah. It's all in I how want, you phrase it. I want more it, right? time. It is. Mm-hmm. It is all in how you phrase it, yeah. which is, you know, truly informed consent versus you know, bullying people to say yes to what you want them to say yes to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because so often what will follow in that conversation is, okay, you got to come in and have Pitocin um, because you want a healthy baby, right? I mean, what mom is going to answer that question with no, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah. I know. We phrase it like that all the time. It's. I know. And. It's very manipulative. It's very manipulative. And we both know that. Most of the time, you don't actually need the Pitocin. Your body will kick into labor on its own, just like it's supposed to, and do the job beautifully. I really don't like the the messages that we give women that you're doing something slightly outside of the norm, therefore you're abnormal and we're going to fix you. I mean, sometimes that is exactly the case, but not that often. Well, the lang- again, it gets back to the language. I mean, I I really have difficulty with the language that we use in obstetrics. Mm -hmm. Dysfunctional labor. Right. Failure to descend. Right. I mean, all of those terms, they're all very judgmental and mechanical. Right. As if mom failed, therefore, let's fix her. Correct. Because we have all of these tools in the toolbox that we can use. You're dysfunctional. Yeah. Your labor is dysfunctional. We must fix it. The truth of the matter is most of the time that the system is dysfunctional. The woman's just fine. She's in labor. She's doing her thing. She's on her own, you know, time track. If we left her alone, most of the time, I don't know, probably nine times out of ten, she'd deliver just fine without our messing with her. Totally agree. The system is what's broken. How many times do you hear a woman say, oh, I had to have an emergency C-section? And you think instantly, yeah, it wasn't an emergency. (laughs) I think that all the time. All every the time, time I hear the word emergency. Yeah. You didn't have it. You had yeah. every something time. else. <laughs> every time. Yeah. My baby's heart rate dropped yeah. and I had to have an emergency C-section. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wonder if that's how people need to think about it, that it was an emergency, so it had to happen. So therefore they can accept it. Right. Right. Because they were actually sort of powerless in that situation. Yeah. Though and I, the, you know, the other, 
the other thing about labor and delivery and the environment is that it's so foreign to people that they are paralyzed and they're like sheep. You know, they're, they're going to do, if they're told, you know, you need to have a C-section, they're going to say, okay, because it's for your baby. Right. And since it's such a foreign environment, um, they're at our mercy. Right. They also, most people don't know what actually is for the baby and what actually is for the insurance company. You know, it people don't know. And that is precious cargo. You've been carrying that baby for nine months. You want a healthy baby. And if these people are telling you that you have to go do this thing or you have to accept these interventions in order to complete this journey to have the healthy baby, you're going to do it. Most people are going to do it. You, absolutely. Yeah, but I think that word is getting around that we have a big problem here in the United States. And I was just talking to um, one of the researchers at the Quality Maternal, no, California Maternal Quality Care Coalition. And they, oh yeah, you know, yeah, they just put out a new toolkit for clinicians about how to avoid the first C-section and support vaginal birth. And it's very comprehensive. It's, you know, it's, it's an excellent tool for hospitals to have on board. Um, but the fact that we have to have these kinds of initiatives is kind of startling. You know? For sure. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Well, um, you and I have actually been talking for quite a while now. And I want to ask you... The last question that I like to ask everybody. You ready? I am. Where are you in your life as a mom? Oh, you mean in terms of, uh, I guess I need more clarification. You get to answer it any way you want. Where are you in your life as a mom? Well, I would say that I am very content mm-hmm. and sometimes challenged by my life as a mom. Mm-hmm. I am really glad that I chose the path of motherhood and my kids have taught me more than I ever could have imagined and my path is markedly different than it would have been without them. Mm-hmm. So I'm very, I'm very content with that and I think that I'm challenged because I'm constantly learning from my kids and having to morph and adapt to what they need and what we need as a family. And you just can't predict what's going to be around the next corner. So it it keeps you on your toes. Yeah, it does. And, you know, as the mom, you're the mom of adolescent teenage daughters. Frankly, I like to get the word out to mothers with younger children that, yeah, the teen years adolescent years are they're different they are different but they're not as scary as many people think do you agree with that I totally agree with that I th- and I think that you just you know it's kind of like being pregnant you don't really have a choice once you've made that decision you're on the path mm-hmm. your kids are going to get to be adolescents and you'll survive mm-hmm. and there's lots of you know many people have come before you and so accessing your community of friends and your wise mothers um, is always an option when you're stumped with mm-hmm. what to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, teenagers don't get enough attention for 
how brilliant and passionate and full of potential they are. And, you know, we, we give all the big press to the stupid choices they make and the, you know, notorious behavior that teenagers seem to get into. But what about the fact that they are all about discovery? They're all about, you know, they're just finding out who they are at their most distilled point in life. They're just, they're about radical change and about finding out who they are. And that is actually sort of the ideal, I think, of what we all want for our lives. I mean, I don't want to be a teenager it's forever. It's awesome to watch. Yeah, yeah. To, to watch them learn that, no, I am art. I am not the band. You know? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Well, Chris, hate to let you go. I have a feeling you and I will talk again on the podcast, but let's say goodbye for now. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us and sharing your insights and perspective. Well, it was a pleasure and thanks for having me, Jeannie. Okay, great. We'll talk again soon. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said, Mama said, Today's guest was Chris Beard. She's a midwife with the Kaiser Permanente Healthcare System here in Portland, Oregon. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios in Portland, Oregon. You can find my book on Amazon, anywhere books are sold, Common Sense Pregnancy. Uh, you can reach me at gene at genefaulkner.com or tweet me at genefaulkner. Uh, Keep sending me your questions. I love them, and we'll probably answer a few more next week. Uh, And again, thank you guys. Thanks for keeping this conversation going. Mama 